My name is Noah Guyberson, and I'm here alongside my co-hosts, M. Hi. And Rob. Hey there. We are the hosts of Fax Machine, a podcast by and for people who are curious about everything, but especially the things that make them laugh. This time, we are joined by neuroscientist Andre Pineda, PhD, who, among other things, is a science communicator, a science comedian, and a science Canadian. Woo! Andre, <laughs> welcome to Fax Machine. Oh, thank you guys so much for having me. So, uh, to us, you have been an integral part of the gritty New York science comedy scene. Um, so tell us, why, why why use comedy to get people interested in science? That's a great question. I think a great use, reason to use comedy to get people interested in science is because people like comedy. And, <laughs> and you want people to like you and what you're doing. So in general, I mean, I think that much has been discussed and written about how to get people interested in science. And you can't just shout facts at people. You need to hook them, whether it's through a narrative or through comedy. Well, I just want to say shouting facts at people is very much like our business. So, well, yeah. <laughs> no, It's our bread I, and butter. I think you guys do a wonderful job of actually you know, creating a narrative and making stories and making people learn facts through fun and interesting and funny ways. I think you guys are doing it the exact right way. So it's educational. Oh, uh, it's it's educational uh, because it's funny and interesting and, and narrative based. So I think that's what people want to hear, and that's the kind of delivery mechanism um, that you need to to get people interested in science. Well, that's very high praise yeah. uh, coming from you. Yeah, you hear yes. it here, folks. Don't send your kids to school. Just listen to the podcast. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> so in every episode, each of us shares one fascinating fact, along with the incredible story behind it. And finally, we wrap things up with a pub-style trivia quiz loosely inspired by the theme. This week, our theme is Paradigm Shifts, fundamental changes in the basic concepts, approaches, and underlying assumptions of a scientific field, a term originally referring only to the natural sciences, but which has come to be applied much more broadly and probably to be overused. So without further ado, Emily, take it away. This week, I learned that the semmelweis reflex, a term given to the human tendency to reject new information that contradicts dogma, norms, or, dare I say, paradigms, is named after a guy who was scorned by the medical establishment for suggesting a radical new protocol, washing your damn hands. I refuse to accept this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and like in various ways, I think, as will, I think, become more evident as the story progresses. Ooh. All right, so to put this guy, whose name uh, was Ignaz Semmelweis, and his story in context, here's like a little quick and dirty, but actually like, <laughs> actually Squeaky dirty. Queen. Yeah. <laughs> um, history of germ theory, uh, which is basically the concept, of, like the scientific theory, that diseases are transmitted by germs. So like lots of other now well-accepted theories, its history is littered with folks who made the right observations and understandably drew the wrong conclusions, uh, and folks who made the right observations and amazingly drew the right conclusions, and then also folks who called all those previous folks crazy until the science irrefutably backed them up. So 
inklings of germ theory have been around since antiquity uh, through the Middle Ages with scholars from various cultures observing that disease spread through communities where people were sharing food or living spaces um, and also moved around with people as they moved from communities with illness to those without. Um, and they kind of ascribed the culprit of this to some sort of invisible seed um, that could be transferred from person to person through direct or indirect contact. Um, and these ideas were later supported um, by a key advance in the 17th century, uh, the microscope, uh, whose invention allowed people like Antoine von Leeuwenhoek uh, to see microorganisms, or as he called them at the time, animalcules, which is yeah. just so cute, <laughs> um, but to see them, like actually see these possibly invisible seeds for the first time um, and speculate that these might be uh, the conductors of disease. But it wasn't until the 1800s that germ theory really started to pick up, um, not so much in that it was completely like replacing the predominant competing theory uh, that was like miasma theory. So basically that diseases arose from inhaling like a miasma or bad air um, that's let off by rotting organic material but and that would um, be like they're like <coughs> miasma <coughs> <laughs> i can't breathe <coughs> where's me inhaler <laughs> oh miasma oh. oh i so missed that i totally i was like i was like I that totally was not worth it <laughs> and i finally got it oh, i'm sorry i had to double back for it my bad <laughs> get the albuterol miasma's kicking in okay i get it i get it now uh, so, I, so yeah, miasma theory was still like prevailing for actually a surprisingly long time, like up through the end of the 19th century. Um, but still in that century, scientists made crucial observations in support of germ theory and then actually began applying those observations experimentally uh, towards the treatment of patients and also towards public health um, efforts with some pretty compelling results. Um, so one big player in this kind of like era of germ theory uh, research was Agostino Bassi. Uh, so he determined that microorganisms actually can cause disease um, by demonstrating that a fungus that was afflicting silkworms at the time could be like scraped off of one silkworm to infect another one. So like the silkworms that had this would grow this sort of like white powder on their like I almost called their wings feathers <laughs> on their wings. <laughs> silkworms could have feathers. I don't know. Why not? Um, but it, and like the powder contained fungal spores, and they basically figured out that that was like transmitting disease from one to another. Um, another notable dude who I'm very excited to mention for a few reasons, but mainly because his name is John Snow, and he actually knew quite a bit, um, specifically about the transmission of cholera in London. So oh my God, just like season eight. That's crazy. <laughs> I, but by uh, tracking outbreaks in London, like of cholera, he was actually able to isolate a water pump that was like at the epicenter of a bunch of cases in a neighborhood um, and persuade the city to shut this water pump down. And then cases actually dwindled like considerably after that. So this work was considered like one of the earliest applications of epidemiology, which is yeah, pretty they, cool for back they then. They never talk about the effects it had on the water pump economy afterwards. Like it was pretty bad. <laughs> the whole industry. <laughs> There we go. Um, but later in the 19th century, our understanding became more concrete uh, with the work of Louis Pasteur um, in dispelling spontaneous generation of microorganisms. So like this is a theory that had been around also for many centuries preceding that like 
things would like living beings would spontaneously generate in places where they were not before, including things that cause disease. That's not true. Um, But he also uh, detected microorganisms uh, in association with disease and Robert Koch's studies of anthrax, from which he developed an experimental framework um, for establishing associations between germs and the diseases they cause uh, in future research. So around this time, there are also a bunch of like so-called sanitary movements that were happening in cities like London and Paris. Or basically, it's like city governments were taking motions to improve public health um, in a way that was focused on building like sanitation practices and infrastructure. Um, And also, like later on, we had Joseph Lister of Listerine. Now, that's his like kind (laughs) of what he's remembered as. Um, But he was a uh, physician who began applying Pasteur's findings to medical procedures, namely by proposing the use of antiseptic um, and also pioneering aseptic techniques. But prior to Pasteur, even as all these health-oriented social movements and disease-quashing efforts were going on, uh, miasma theory was still the prevailing paradigm of how diseases spread. I'm just going to, like, emphasize paradigm really obnoxiously every time I say it, and I'm sorry. I just can't, I can't stop myself. But Would you say that is... the idea spread person to person, or was it more, like, based on the area you were in? It, you know, it may have, it was kind of like a miasma. <laughs> they had something just though. it was in the air at medical conferences and then just yeah uh, <laughs> but it was in this scene in 1846 that ignaz semmelweis our main character here uh began his what would in modern terms be kind of described as a chief residency um at the first obstetrical clinic of vienna general hospital So this clinic was essentially a teaching hospital um, where poor, underprivileged women could go to get like free treatment and have babies with the caveat they'd be cared for by doctors or midwives in training for both of those professions. And Ignaz noticed uh, pretty early on that there was a big difference between the two clinics. Uh, One was attended by doctoral students and the other by midwifery students. Um, And that difference was the mortality rate. So uh, in the midwife's clinic, the mortality rate of pregnant women was about 4%, while in the doctor's clinic, it was about 10, um, due to a much higher incidence of, uh, pardon me for botching this probably, but pure pearl or childbed fever. (laughs) But yeah, so childbed fever at the time was caught by women who uh, had given birth, and they didn't really know much about it beyond that, but it was just kind of like a like a fever that they would develop and that would unfortunately usually be pretty usually be pretty fatal so uh the reputation of the doctoral clinic uh having a much higher higher mortality rate was so well known that according to ignace's accounts women actually begged him to be admitted to the midwife's clinic um and some of them actually opted to give birth in the streets rather than like hospital jesus yeah, so it was it was pretty bad, and that understandably kind of spurred him to set about trying to understand why uh, these mortality rates were so different between the two clinics. So he progressively kind of ruled out all sorts of factors related to how each clinic ran and cared for its patients, including crowding, the temperature um, in the treatment areas, like the birthing positions that each uh, set of caregivers recommended. Um, and at one point, he even rerouted priests who typically passed through the doctor's clinic on the way to give last rites to other patients on the off mm. chance the women simply seeing the priests stress them to the point of fever, which, I mean, I guess, fine, what? you got to rule everything out. But also, these women were giving birth pre-epidural or like any kind of like 
pain reliever in a hospital that was gross and like probably going to kill them as they knew going in. And yeah. I feel like a priest with like a little bell and some Eucharist wafers was not going to be the stressor <laughs> that tips them over the edge. Um, but anyways, as I mentioned, he ruled out all of these different factors. But at the end of the day, uh, the only remaining one was just who was caring for the patients in each clinic doctors or midwives. Um, and when his friend, a pathologist who prepared autopsy cadavers for the doctors to study, uh, died of an infection from a scalpel cut, he realized that the caregivers might actually be the problem. So as a little disclaimer to everyone, this is where it's going to actually get gross. Like we've been talking oh. about germs this whole time, but like this is where it actually gets Okay, I'll just take, I'll take these opposite. Let's cool. get started. Andre is recusing himself. <laughs> we'll come back later. Nope, no thanks. <laughs> So uh, at this time, like at this time frame, uh, medical training began to prioritize uh, like kind of like students' scientific understanding of their medicine, which is cool, forward thinking into it. Um, so as part of this, anatomical study with cadavers became a more common and like formal part of medical students' education. So generally, in, at Vienna Hospital, uh, students would operate on cadavers, as they do now, uh, except with no gloves or PPE or anything, and like maybe wash their hands with a little soap or water, if they feel like it, and then immediately go to the obstetrics clinic and perform pelvic exams and deliveries. Boo. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> pretty bad. Um, the midwives, on the other hand, were not doing that. So that emerges a pretty clear difference between like what was happening in each clinic. So Ignaz hypothesized that the doctors had, uh, as he described them, cadaverous particles on their hands. Gross. Yeah, Gross. when they were. Oh my god! Yeah, I mean, I warned you. Presumably, we're not talking about like an ear <laughs> <laughs> stuck on to you. Oh god! Just get here. Brush it off your shirt collar. Like, oh, sorry about that. It's my fifth one today. Like. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, so uh, the doctors had, you know, contamination from their previous cadaver work on their hands when they were performing procedures with their pregnant patients, um, which then gave the patients childbed fever. Um, and he began documenting various cases of it in support of this and actually eventually broadened his observations to like other diseases too. So like doctors would treat a different kind of patient, still not wash their hands, go to treat these women and they would get sick. Um, and he instructed students to rub a chlorinated lime, like a chlor, like basically a chlorine, like bleach adjacent solution, um, so on not, their hands like prior to seeing patients. Like not like a lime. No, not like a not like, get a lime. Not like a lime. Get chlorinated. <laughs> get some, <laughs> lime. some lime. <laughs> so, no, lime like the corrosive lime. Okay. But like miles enough, it wasn't like burning through your hands or anything. Um, but I will say like for, well, if anybody out there kind of likes the grossness, a detail that kind of caught me about him like proposing this particular solution was that for uh, basically exper like experientially, it was the only thing that could remove like the smell <laughs> from the student's <laughs> hands. So that was why he settled upon that over soap and water, so, which was not so still. So still kind of stuck on the miasma smell. Yeah, yeah. If that's Can the only metric they had of like, you're clean when you don't stink anymore. So, you know, things that don't make you stink are what cleans you. That's the best they can yeah. do. Yeah. <laughs> things that don't make you stink. <laughs> I'm not an English major. Okay. <laughs> I feel like it's just the weakest soap commercial ever. If it doesn't make you stink. <laughs> hey, you're good. <laughs> It's like sand, the cheap soap. Sand. <laughs> you'll, you'll smell feel... neutral. <laughs> I, I do feel like I do feel like um, 
it, it it makes you not stink is like the red what is it old spice commercial version oh yeah because they just yell something at you like old yeah. spice it this makes is, you not this stink. this is much older spice this is like middle-aged spice yes <laughs> this is victorian spice i mean the days in that day it was just rubbing spices on yourself there you go <laughs> it was very much cover up the scent uh, exactly. Uh, I think I I don't think I've mentioned this on the podcast before, Ooh. but I love uh, the fact about Chanel Number no. Five, mm. um, and it, like the the famous perfume, right? Yeah. And uh, <laughs> one of its like things that it was advertised is it was like the scent of a woman, which <laughs> I always thought was hilarious because surely the scent of a woman is what you're trying to mask. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it always struck me as funny. <laughs> Be like the odor of a body. Yeah. <laughs> nope. No Don't want that. Just imagining like O de B O, but B O is smelled like, spelled Frenchly. That would just yeah. <laughs> spelled Frenchly. Be something. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not the best description, but you can picture it. Like you can totally yeah. picture. There are it. a bunch of vowels in there that you just ignore. Basically, that's how you spell Frenchly. It's it's like the opposite of Welsh. Oh my gosh, yeah. If you combined French and Welsh, you would never get past your first word. <laughs> I think you would, but you would have an even number of vowels and consonants. Yeah. It's like matter and antimatter. There we go. It balances out in the end. Uh, so yeah, so as I mentioned, uh, because of these observations, he instructed students to start rubbing this like chlorine solution on their hands before, after they did their autopsies and before they started seeing patients. And there are charts of childhood fever mortality data from patients before and after he implemented this um, that he maintained. And to look at now, they're pretty stunning. Um, so there's a very clear dip like in the death rate in the doctor's clinic uh, when uh, Ignaz's hand washing came into effect. And the data is actually pretty stunning. Uh, so there's a very clear dip in the death rate um, with the institution of hand washing. Uh, it goes from like 18 to 2%, which makes it then equal to the midwife's clinic. So between the doctors and the midwife's clinics. Um, and then there was actually another dip a year after that, which brought the death rate closer to zero when he cracked down on students who were not adhering to his regimen. Huh. And then sadly, like with perfect accuracy, a year after that, a spike in deaths when he was fired from the institution. He so... killed all those people? <laughs> out of spite. Oh on his God. way out. <laughs> so, yeah. So this is where the story gets even more depressing. Um, and where the Similwise reflex gets its namesake. So uh, Ignaz, rightfully excited that this very simple change to medical procedure was saving a lot of patients' lives, began writing letters to the heads of maternity clinics and medical journal editors all over the world so other physicians could learn about it. Um, and his students were writing papers and giving lectures about it too, um, though notably he himself didn't produce any literature until about like 10 years after his initial findings, which might have been honestly part of the problem that I'm about to talk about. So initially, there was some confusion and like misinterpretation by the medical community about what his findings actually were, but that was very swiftly replaced by strongly worded denouncement and discreditation by various big names. Um, and I will say, looking at their criticisms, which are mostly just kind of like letters in response to these editors' letters and papers by his students and recordings of their lectures, um, basically the gist is they were just trying to poke holes in his ultimately like very empirical observations by claiming that theoretically they couldn't be backed up and discrediting how new he was to the field and that there was some, well, I'll just give a few examples, but it was, uh, it was just very silly, honestly. Okay. Um, 
But things they questioned were that patients seemed to get sick from not only cadaverous particles, like he mentioned that he saw this happening with other patients as well, um, in terms of like doctors not hand washing in between. Okay, fine. That doesn't change anything, but fine. Yeah. Um, also that the patients didn't get sick, uh, that did get sick, didn't present identical symptoms. And even prior to this, like patients with childhood fever, because it was more so was kind of like a spectrum of symptoms and like was not well characterized. This was not entirely surprising. Um, and also just went after him because the ultimate cause of their disease was in his, you know, theory still, as it was at the time anyways, like something invisible and uncharacterized. Um, and this was all to kind of cloud his very simple observation that washing your hands results in fewer people dying. <laughs> um, I did just want to mention one more kind of like comment with relation to the response to Ignace's findings, just because they kind of like summarize what we discussed in terms of the real reason that the doctors were perturbed. There was an American obstetrician uh, who was quoted to comment at the time, doctors are gentlemen and a gentleman's hands are clean. So gross. God. Yeah. <laughs> that nice. is uh. arguably the most toxic masculinity <laughs> <laughs> <So gross. laughs> like, that I've ever heard. So anyways, um, but the rest of uh, Ignace's life after all of this is unfortunately really sad, to be honest. Um, as I mentioned, he was fired. Um, and he reportedly became like increasingly obsessive about his studies and how no one believed him. Um, he took to attacking any physicians who spoke against his ideas like vehemently and publicly in the press. Uh, he became an alcoholic and developed what was maybe bipolar disorder from, you know, like kind of retrospective diagnosis. Um, and then ultimately was involuntarily checked into an asylum and died there at like 47. But his hypothesis um, was later confirmed by Pasteur, who actually did identify like specifically the microbial basis of childbed fever. Um, and of course, his legacy has come to be honored um, now since. But anyways, his just felt like a story that was not only relevant to our current episode with, you know, the Semmelweis reflex, uh, you know, being about uh, reluctance to adapt to shifting paradigms, um, but also, you know, quite a, has many connections to our current times as well that I probably don't need to expound upon. This week I learned about the paradigm shift about what is the center of the universe. So you may all know um, that this is actually not about the real center of the universe. That came much later. But to break things down into terms that we're familiar with from like elementary, middle, and high school, there's the geocentric theory, which is that the Earth is the, the center of the universe, and that's because we're on it, and specifically I'm on it because I'm <laughs> awesome, and so my planet is the middle of the universe. Um, and that's what every individual is meant to believe. Uh, or there's the heliocentric theory that the sun is at the center of the universe, which I'm using in quotation marks yeah. here. And is that meant to basically like the people on the sun are actually way cooler than us? Yeah. I mean, it's actually way hotter. It's actually, yeah. <laughs> the hottest people in the world. Wait, no universe. Universe. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so this, this was the big discussion. What's the middle, uh, which is a really interesting problem because as, as we'll see, um, the, the idea that your senses cannot be fooled or that there's that your sensory perception is the truth, which is a big field of epistemology and, and learning about the truth. Um, it looks like the earth is standing still, right? If you look, the earth is not moving. Um, so we're going to talk about how geocentric theory fooled a lot of really smart people for a very long time. So we can trace ge uh, geocentric theory way back. It's basically was the default belief 
um, you know, in the absence of thinking about it, you believe the the big rock you're standing on is the most important rock in existence. Um, but the first person to really like lay out a theory about it and, and all the observations of space and the world was Ptolemy. And Ptolemy was totally wrong um, because the Earth is not the center of the universe. But he, he laid out this really detailed geocentric theory in his book, The Almagest. Uh, and that's where he takes all his observations about uh, astronomy and the movement of the Earth and the observations of the sun and stars and he lays them out in this mathematically kind of beautiful um, series of observations. Uh, and so even then there were critics um, looking at the work that he did. Uh, where he, he, you, So using the Ptolemaic geocentric theory, you could extrapolate where's Mercury going to be in a year. Like when will the sun rise in a given time? So it was a very robust mathematical theory. Uh, it just didn't describe what was actually happening. Um, so Pythagoras himself... Um, who was a big proponent of the Earth moving, something called geokinesis, um, but didn't necessarily think that meant it couldn't be the center of the universe. Um, he, he had his critiques of Ptolemy. And another guy named Aristarchus of Samos, who I think is you know basically lost to history, except he was the guy in the 3rd century BC who proposed what, what we now know as the heliocentric model of the solar system. He was like, sun's in the middle, everything else spins around it, Look how neatly this works. And literally everyone was like, nah. <laughs> and like it just it worked so much better, but no one believed it. Because there's so many things about it that seemed hard to believe. Um, and so there are other things, like other beliefs at the time. Um, one guy named Heraclides said there was an Egyptian system in which the sun went around the earth, but Mercury and Venus went around the sun. Um, so like weird how like there are mini orbits around bigger orbits, but like just not the correct model. Um, so Ptolemy understood, like, there's no way to prove he was right, right? If any mathematical model, you could make the numbers fit what you observe, and that doesn't prove that they're correct. It just is a possibility, uh, something that, like, modern statisticians go nuts telling people as they look at data nowadays that just because the numbers work doesn't mean it's true. Um, but so his razor, his way of thinking about it was, um, if it's the simplest possible explanation, that's probably the true one. So he, even though he had this complex model, it was consistent throughout. It could be explained by a common set of rules. So if you're Ptolemy, here's what you thought. One, the Earth was a sphere. This was a given. This was always a given. As we talked about like many podcasts ago, flat Earth didn't really become a big thing until Washington Irving in like the 1800s. So like no one was like, well, if it's flat, that makes this really hard. It was not even a problem. The Earth was a sphere. Um, point two Everything in space is also a sphere. So the sun, the moon, all the stars, they're just different sized spheres out in space. Very good. Um, number three, anything that moves, moves in a circle. Because circles are perfect, and so is everything. <laughs> I was with him up until right then. <laughs> I mean, it makes me think of like the parody of like uh, physicists who try to like break down models. Like, assume it's a sphere. Assume yeah. everything moves in a circle. And then this model works perfectly. Yeah. 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 And like <laughs> it like Um <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's kinda of like I mean it's definitely an idealistical model because you think of the like the glory of space and like how it has to be perfect, which is like really beautiful. And like it's it's a kind of almost religious view of the universe. Uh but you I I can't help but think about uh Emmett from the Lego 
uh, movie, and it's just like everything is circles, <laughs> <laughs> just like walking around. That's just, not a reference. I to get. be clear for the listeners, Rob was dancing out the song. Everything yeah, is awesome, you, but yeah, his circle interpretation of it. He, the man commits, you know. Yeah, <laughs> commits the bit even and, when he can't see it. And for Noah, <laughs> just know it's happening. <laughs> The song is Everything is Awesome, and there's a little okay. Lego man who dances around because everything is awesome. Oh, okay. Yeah. He's a great... You and Emmett would have a lot in common, Noah, I think. Oh, you yeah. really connect. Yeah. Um, no, just click. Yeah, as you do. Just snap together. <laughs> um, oh, sorry. And the, the fourth thing that Ptolemy believed was that the Earth did not spin. The Earth does not rotate or revolve on its own axis. Um, and he was adamant about this. And why? What, like, what's the single best piece of evidence that the Earth doesn't spin? Do you guys want to guess? It doesn't no. seem like it's spinning. <laughs> you you oh, can't feel it? Oh, because we don't fly off. Okay, that would be a really good um, piece of evidence <laughs> as well. Um, Poor Ptolemy. <laughs> yeah. He, he was stuck on the fact that the Earth is really big. He had like he and his you know, colleagues had calculated the diameter of the Earth, which is a huge sphere. And he knew how long a day took. And he was like, if we were moving at that speed, which, by the way, we are, his, his claim was, it would be so windy, you guys. The wind would be ridiculous. And this was his entire reason. Like, it can't be true. It's way not windy enough. Um, and, like, no one could convince him otherwise. Um, and so everything close in his model worked, actually. The sun, all the planets, they behaved according to his rules. Uh, the problem was other stars um, so for the other stars to work, he assumed they had to be 20 astronomical units away. An astronomical unit is the distance from the Earth to the Sun. Um, so just for reference, the, the solar system is about 90 astronomical units to like the edge of the, the, the heliopause where like its gravity kind of matches others. Um, and so he thought all the stars were like where Jupiter is um, and everything else was much, much closer. What a dummy. <laughs> and like it's it's hard to put in context like how how like how you could have known that but aristarchus the other guy with his uh heliocentric model was like no man they've got to be like at least two thousand astronomical units away because they're so different and and far off um and for reference the nearest star proxima centauri is two hundred thousand astronomical units away so even that guy was like super wrong but he was you know two orders of magnitude closer um so that's where like kind of astronomy stopped at around the third century BC um, for like 2000 years in, in like Western thought. Um, Jesus happened, Rome happened, some other stuff. Um, and really like if you if you read Western textbooks, it's like the medieval scholars started looking at maps and things and then like Copernicus happened. Uh, in reality, um, what happened in the year 700 was super important, and that was when the amalgam that was written by Ptolemy was translated into Arabic, um, because it was basically this huge book of all the like recorded thought of astronomy, um, and it was introduced to an entirely new population of Arab scholars, and they went fucking turbo with this, because they <laughs> basically... They just took that it... That was the best description of that I've ever heard. <laughs> But they went, they went off, and they were like, "Hey, wait! Like, we found this, and look at that, and all we can improve these models." And like, they made, and they were like, "Hey, guys in Europe, like, are y'all interested in learning a little bit about what we're discovering?" They're like, "Nah, sorry, we're good. <laughs> we already established the Earth doesn't spin. 
<laughs> There's no need for you to look further into Just this. Look yeah, at the wind. Don't people. rock the look boat. At the wind. Come on. <laughs> Case you ever, is closed. You ever heard of Ptolemy? Okay, because Ptolemy <laughs> said it doesn't spin. So if you're putting yourself on the same level as Ptolemy, <laughs> he's pretty famously a pretty smart guy. Okay. Yeah. No need to question it. Yeah, he's he's a regular Archimedes, this Ptolemy guy. <laughs> uh, but so they they really like they developed so much astronomical wealth of knowledge, um, and all of their work they like they basically um, like the, this group of Arab scholars for three or four hundred years who, who like are not really well known in Western scientific histories. Um, they redeveloped like aspects of trigonometry and algebra, the way that we measure like spherical coordinates. Um, they, they, they revolutionized the way that astronomy would be discussed. And it, it heavily influenced Copernicus, Tycho Brahe, and Galileo, who all owned all of the, the books and the writings of the Arab scholars. And just, just to, there are so many that like we could do a whole episode about, um, but one to name, even Al-Haytham. Uh, who's known as the father of optics because he was the guy that like really started making lenses that could do amazing things. And he, he used them to develop telescope lenses first because he was an astronomer. But he's credited with developing the scientific method. Like he's the first guy that was like, here's how you do an experiment rigorously. Here's how you like do trials to like see that it's repeatable and like talked about what we now consider like power. Um, and and like like to think that's a name that like I learned today. Like I was today days old when I heard this guy's name <laughs> and like, it's like, it's crazy. Um, but so, so they were going through this absolute renaissance of thought and it was literally because just the, the books of the earlier scholars hadn't been translated into Arabic until that time. So there were, there were astronomers working in medieval Europe and they were actually making advances and figuring out, Oh, there are some flaws in this Ptolemaic geocentric theory. Um, and, they actually like brought up these problems to to like you know to their their scholar and like the usually monks and, and monasteries studying this, um, but the problem was like they were predom- predominantly Christians studying it in Europe and a lot of monotheistic religions like predicated the earth as the center of the universe. It was like very important and actually was the basis of moral theology in some cases. Like because the earth is the center of the universe, therefore this about like the way that um, transfiguration could happen or the assumption into heaven. And like if you said suddenly, nah, it's just a random spinning rock like that, that would cast doubt onto the whole like dogma of the church. And so they were like, there must be we must be making mistakes or there's a mistake in the in the constant in this calculation. Um, But so based on the work of the Arab scholars of the 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th centuries, Copernicus started to write his geokinetic and heliocentric theory. So again, geokinetic being that the earth is moving, it is in motion, and heliocentric that the sun is the thing that's stable at the center. Um, So he published that in 1543, and it was met with immediate criticism, um, a lot of which was not entirely religious. There was religious criticism, um, but there were also like mathematical criticisms and observational criticisms, um, things that couldn't be explained because... Um, one thing that actually is really interesting, if the Earth is moving that much, the argument was that stars should shift in relative position to one another in something called parallax. As we move from the opposite ends of our orbit, we should get two different views like we get with depth perception. Um, and that was never observed. And so what's amazing is the person who explained that away uh, was way back in the early days, uh, Aristarchus. He was like, well, they've got to be so far away that it doesn't matter when you're on one end or the other. Um, but even in Copernicus's time, that was a big problem. People were like, stars are not that far away. 
he he was really smart to say like stars do move relative to one another but so insignificantly we can't see it and now in the 20th century we have like really powerful telescopes and like the ability to kind of set set um set standards to tell that they're moving like just thousandths of a degree or like an arc second basically and we're able to see those right. really slight changes um so yeah he was like i mean that's the third century bc he was really like a big thinker for his time um and not one of the most famous names but so copernicus wrote his book 1543 basically set all of these things um out he, he laid out what the heliocentric theory was and people criticized it Galileo was an early critic of it, actually, but he got really into the math behind it. And so um, by the time Galileo was doing a lot of his writing in the early 1600s, um, the church had already banned um, Copernicus's book. And then they went back and like a republish was made where basically it said like, this is a hypothesis, but not the truth because the truth is this other thing. So they were able to kind of like it was allowed to be published um, in like Christian countries because of that like rewording. Um, so in 1616, under the Roman Inquisition, Galileo was never questioned. So that's the first time that the Roman Inquisition met up with him. But he was given like an explicit warning because he was studying space not to espouse heliocentrism. Um, and he was like, yeah, sure. No, I totally don't believe that. Oh, that's fine. Um, and so they just kind of let him go. And so you may like there's this narrative that Galileo was dogged by the church for 20 years to like give up. Um, in reality, in 1616, they told him not to do it. They kept an eye on him throughout their Inquisition. And then in 1632, he wrote a book, or he wrote a work uh, titled Dialogue on Two World Systems. Um, and Pope Urban VIII ordered another uh, investigation into him. And this one led to a prosecution. So the normal methods, um, there was basically an interrogation where they hoped to get a confession. And that's really the entire game in Inquisitions, if you're ever caught in one. They're just trying to get you to confess because once you confess, then you're guilty. But the problem is with heresy, if you don't confess, then you actually haven't done anything wrong because it's all thought. So it's really hard to, to charge someone with a heresy unless they confess. Um, and so, so the basically cardinal... don't talk to the cops is what you're telling me. <laughs> exactly. That's my best advice. All right. um, but the cardinal inquisitors were like, well, we can't actually charge him with anything. Um, so we're going to make him think we have a case against him and, and then try to get a plea deal. Um, and so the plea bargain was that he had to admit to going too far in his defense of heliocentrism um, without saying he ever believed in it. And so Galileo took that. He agreed, saying that he argued for heliocentrism in a debate in a book. And he was so masterful a debater that he oversold the losing side um, and like out-argued the champion, which was geocentrism. And with that, they pretty much let him go. Um, I'm so I'm so interested in your like almost like l procedural legal drama depiction. It's kind of like canon Law and Order. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, second episode in a row we've made Law and Order puns about the science we're talking about. <laughs> I know we're setting a dangerous precedent, but I think. <laughs> um, but I mean, it really it really is though because there were like strict rules that they had written about how to interrogate people, which they like clearly like didn't adhere to all the time. Um, but Galileo was a big enough name with enough kind of wealthy patrons that they couldn't they couldn't go off procedure with him. Uh, but basically, he was he was convicted of quote strong suspicion of heresy, which is not heresy. It's <laughs> basically so he was Rounding convicted. <laughs> he was convicted of 
other people thinking he was a heretic. Um, but they couldn't actually charge him with heresy. And so, um, what happened was he was arrested for one day and then basically put under house arrest, uh, which he was under for nine years until he died. Uh, he was never tortured, uh, even though that is like in canon law, something you're allowed to do. Um, but the Pope decreed the interrogation should stop short with the threat of torture. Um, and so... That was that was Galileo's life, and the church did not accept the heliocentric theory. Um, and so let's pass a little bit further into history to talk about the actual paradigm shift, because at this point, a lot of smart astronomers and scientists are accepting heliocentric theory. Church is really strongly against it. They're like, that can't be the, that can't be the way, no way. Um, in 1758, the Catholic Church dropped um, his book from their banned books list, so it was no longer the index of forbidden books. Um, w- without explicitly saying that Galileo wasn't a heretic, just like his books, like okay to read now, they did it really quietly. And actually, it, it got a really public. Um, there was a really public issue in 1820 when someone refused to print it in a cat or a Christian press because it was on the banned book list, and the church had to be like, no, nah, actually, it's uh, it's not. It's it's okay. Um, <laughs> so that was like a little <laughs> embarrassing. Um, and then. Uh, in 1979, Pope John Paul II held a council to basically call theologians, scholars, and historians um, to revisit Galileo's case um, and see if uh, there are any recognition of wrongs from whichever side of the case. So basically, he wanted to exonerate Galileo, it seemed like. And for two years, this council of scholars studied it and came back, and they were like, seems legit. <laughs> So they (laughs) did not exonerate Galileo. And so he gave like a really awkward speech where he was like, he seemed like a good guy, but he's a heretic. And like, that was, that was it. What are you going to do? He tried again, like 10 years later, um, where he gave a speech that basically said the work of Galileo was foundational to understanding the universe the way we know it. And theologians of the time were not open to such a thought because they misinterpreted how his work would affect um, people of faith. And so they were defending the faith, but Galileo was factually correct. Um, and that, that's kind of where the church left it. Uh, Cardinal Ratzinger has done a few, th- or so I should say Pope Benedict the Sixteenth has done a few things in favor of Galileo without also exonerating him. But He was also um, at some point head of the Inquisition, <laughs> or what, what the Inquisition became. I mean, he was a hardliner for sure. <laughs> no, no, I mean, that was his actual position. Um, at some point, I think it was, I can't, I can't remember the exact name of the office, but he, whatever, whatever the, the institution of the, um, like the inquisition became, Oh wow! It, like evolved the official, you know, the, basically they kept getting shuff, shuffled around an office building. Uh, <laughs> like one of his positions was, uh, the head of that. Right, so he was the prefect of the sacred congregation for the doctrine of the faith, um, which is formerly known as the sacred congregation of the Holy office, which was the historical Roman inquisition. Wow. Whoa. Yeah. That was Deep in uh, 80, 81. I, I didn't expect <laughs> 1981, that. 1981, 1981, <laughs> the inquisition. <laughs> I didn't expect that, but no one ever expects the Roman inquisitions. So. No. Yeah. <laughs> there it is. There it is. <laughs> This week I learned that the modern idea of extinction wasn't scientifically established until the end of the 18th century, and wasn't accepted until long after that. So if you were an educated person in the 1700s, you probably believed that nature was basically the same as it had always been. 
There were a bunch of species, and they had existed in the current form since the beginning of the world and would continue to exist in the same form indefinitely. So some of them could be driven out of an area, but they still existed out there in nature somewhere. So people at this time, say in, in the 16th century or before, um, and a long time before then, had seen fossils, right? So fossil collecting was a cool thing to do, but they didn't know that fossils were necessarily the remains of living things. They were just really cool-shaped rocks that were fun to collect. <laughs> so it took until the 17th century for many scientists, or what would then be called natural philosophers, to establish that fossils probably came from living things, because they sure looked similar to living things, and they looked like they had signs of having been living and doing stuff. But matching random old bones you find in the ground to each other or to living creatures is actually really hard. It's still hard today, which is why, for example, there's still so much debate over like how many species of Triceratops there actually were. Um, yeah, match, matching all the dinosaur fossils could be claw and order. <laughs> <laughs> just layering them in. Should I just oh, go no. all the way and say claws in order? <laughs> Something. Like <that>. God, <laughs> <that's good. laughs> I mean, Very nice. Uh, so speaking of fossils, you can imagine if you have a worldview where everything that ever lived is the same as everything that still lives, if you find a ambiguous bone in the ground and you can interpret it as coming from a living creature, you're going to take that interpretation. You're not going to say, this femur is slightly longer than I expect, so let me overthrow my entire worldview. Unless, of course, you are Georges Cuvier. <laughs> Cuvier was a wee French lad who had always had an interest <laughs> in the history of the Earth. French lad. Oh, he was just a tyke. A wee Frenchy. <laughs> or a tyke, as they might call him. <laughs> so by luck, when Cuvier was in his early 20s, he got to know a well-known physician named André-Alexandre Tessier. And Tessier was very impressed by Cuvier's genius, and he wrote to his friends back in Paris, quote, I have just found a pearl in the dunghill of Normandy. <laughs> Which is probably still how Parisians uh, think of wow. other parts of France. I, I also just want to say, Andre, that that is the only good French pronunciation we've ever had yeah. on this podcast. That was, that <laughs> was Canadian AF. Nicely well, if you guys done. need me to, to dub your episodes whenever you need to pronounce a French I actually, I actually have a few French-ass like names in, uh, in the quiz that I might need you to pronounce for me, so I'll send them over to you when the time comes. Okay. Oh, we can go <laughs> back to like episodes two and three when emily had a, a real density of french names and just dub it over with andre that'd be great that'd be great <laughs> won't be distracting at all just go here to, yeah yeah emily Perfect. had a cold for that word <laughs> and a penis <laughs> so tessier met cuvier uh and tessier hooked up cuvier with his more established science friends uh, and Cuvier quickly rose up in the ranks and started doing research on comparing fossils to living species. So he had access to skeletons from different elephants or alleged elephants from around the world, and he studied them to try to understand how they all fit together. By looking at the skeletons of African and Indian elephants, he was the first person to realize that they actually were different species. So it's not just one type of elephant. Different elephants are different from each other. He was also comparing those skeletons to the skeletons of mammoths and what he would later name mastodons. And he realized that none of these things are the same species. Mammoths and mastodons were not the same as living elephants, so they must be extinct. Uh, maybe it's inevitable that elephants were the catalyst for the theory of extinction, because it's easy to say this seashell fossil must belong to some shellfish that we haven't seen yet, but it's hard to say this mammoth fossil belongs to a species of mammoth that we haven't noticed. You would notice a mammoth. I mean, it would be the elephant in the room. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, so basically, yeah, if... if there is a fossil of a mammoth and you haven't seen that mammoth it's probably not around anymore 
1796, when he was 27 years old, Cuvier published a couple of landmark papers, one of them about elephants, mammoths, and mastodons, and the other one about megatherium. Megatherium is another elephant-sized creature that's not an elephant. It's actually a giant ground sloth, an elephant-sized yeah. sloth. That's not relevant to the story. I just find I that amazing. No, it's awesome. Yeah. And I think that's the one that like, uh, basically was the, the animal that was responsible for the current day um, range of the avocado plant other than, you know, that sort of the native range of the avocado plant, because mm-hmm. like a lot of uh, seeds like very have you know, a lot of plants have seeds that like in fruit that animals will eat and then will be excreted like wherever they move to. Mm-hmm. And you think about how hard that would be with an avocado pit. Yeah. Um, and you need like a really <laughs> large a animal. Big animal. <laughs> <laughs> and so one of the thoughts is that like they would be, the avocados would be eaten by like giant sloths and then they would just sort of lumber around somewhere else, poop out their big like sloth avocado poop seed <laughs> thing and then that would like become another avocado tree and so the the some it has something to do with like that the range of avocado trees in the wild or avocado plants in the wild is like the range of these sloths but i feel like if you're counting on a sloth to carry you a long distance you're probably not going to be one that successful time, you, it's one at a time you just take it one poop at a time all right <laughs> this also this also came up in virtual trivia like a week or two ago that the animal that can hold its breath longer like um is it sloths or dolphins is it sloths yeah the answer is sloths <laughs> and it's like a factor of two wow we're, we're hypothesizing oh. why this might be the get the sloths can just hold their breath for a really long time i don't know who found this out or are how. they too like, lazy to breathe slow. is that what's happening Ooh. i i think <laughs> it's just taking breaks i think it's literally like they use so little energy that like they just like metabol like they hibernate between meals. But so I have an alternate theory, which is that, and this is completely unfounded. <laughs> this, is not, this is never a good start. <laughs> but well, like the things. This is an episode about paradigm shifts. We do not consider alternate theories. Geocentrism. <laughs> I'm about this is al- alternative facts machine. <laughs> <laughs> but no, this is the paradigm shift in sloth in sloth breathing that I'm going to introduce to the world. Wow. That. Um, <laughs> We, the things we know about slots is that they take very big poops and that they can hold their breath for a long time. And I think so they they have to hold their breath. Is that what you're take, saying? Yeah, they take a huge poop <laughs> and then they slowly move away from it. And it takes them so long to move away they have to hold oh their breath. Boy. It's a defense mechanism. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then roughly 40 minutes later, when they're like six to ten feet away from the poop, they take a big breath. <laughs> <laughs> That's really. Funny. Oh, look, an avocado. (laughs) (laughs) And the whole cycle starts again. Why do I do this to myself? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know why. (laughs) This is the stupidest thing I've ever said. You ready? Um, You know why (laughs) sloths don't have homes? Because they're obsessed with avocado toes. (laughs) Oh. Oh. Because they're millennials and they can't afford homes. Yeah, that was probably in in a ranking of one of the dumb things. <laughs> I like the effort. Also, shout out to Emily Mercer, PhD, for the for the sloth lung holding fact, nice. uh, breath holding fact. Yeah, mm. <laughs> lung holding. <laughs> <laughs> I got one. I can hold these for so long. It's like the Vikings used to do. <laughs> <laughs> all right sorry Andre, go ahead. okay where were we uh we're talking about extinction so 
<laughs> yeah. Uh, so basically, George Cuvier encountered these extinct animals or discovered these extinct animals. So what happened to them? Well, Cuvier and other people at the time had studied how layers of Earth look different from each other, which is called stratigraphy. Basically, as we now know, as you get deeper in the Earth, you go further back in time. And there are distinct layers of Earth that are built up over different geological time periods. So different layers also contain different fossils from animals. So you can see if some animal existed during one time period and suddenly disappeared in the next time period. So they suspected that the Earth went through periods of relative stability and then sudden catastrophe changed everything, wiped out the species, and let new ones show up somehow. This is not too hard to believe because the idea of a biblical flood was pretty baked into everyone's consciousness. So basically the idea of a global catastrophe is already kind of widely accepted culturally, even by non-religious people. Uh, and this narrative of the history of the Earth, that there are long periods of stability and then sudden changes due to global catastrophe, is appropriately called catastrophism. Uh, I want to read one quote from one of Cuvier's landmark papers, which is this, quote, All of these facts, consistent among themselves and not opposed by any report, seem to me to prove the existence of a world previous to ours, destroyed by some kind of catastrophe. How fucking awesome is that? The existence of a world previous to ours destroyed by some kind of catastrophe. That is hard sci-fi that he is writing about <laughs> yeah. the actual world that we live in. Yeah. Over time, Cuvier established more and more extinct species from the fossil record, and extinction became more and more accepted. But catastrophism was basically rejected in favor of gradualism, which you can imagine means change happens gradually. And individual species go extinct, but they do it one at a time. Uh, over this period of time in the 1800s, people were realizing that the Earth is not 6,000 years old, but actually millions of years old. And so long, gradual changes could explain all of this geological and biological turnover that we were learning about. You don't need a sudden catastrophe to explain big changes because the change can happen very slowly over time. And who's ever seen a global catastrophe? The catastrophes that Cuvier theorized about were, by definition, things that nobody had ever seen. And nobody, including Cuvier, could explain them. So scientists at the time dismissed catastrophism as being based on miracles like the biblical flood and not based on observable facts. Global catastrophes just didn't happen. Surely there were no historic events that suddenly wiped out large parts of life on Earth. <laughs> that would be a crazy idea. So Cuvier got absolutely dunked on by his contemporaries. <laughs> and, uh, his contemporaries just went turbo on oh him. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> So one of his ideas of extinction survived, but catastrophism did not. And amazingly, the idea of gradualism reigned supreme for almost two centuries after that, until 1980. So that, in 1980, is when a father-son duo named Walter and Luis Alvarez published a paper suggesting that an asteroid caused the sudden end of the Cretaceous period and wiped out over 70% of Earth's species. So the idea of an asteroid wiping out uh, most of life on Earth was a crazy idea in 1980 that was hotly contested. Uh, but in 1999, the crater from the asteroid impact was identified, and that pretty much put the debate to bed. So, yes, global catastrophes do exist and wipe out most of all life on Earth what are, in what are now called mass extinctions. It turns out that extinction does happen gradually and slowly until it doesn't. There have been five mass extinctions in the history of Earth, and now with humans killing everything they can get their hands on, we are now seeing the sixth mass extinction. And not coincidentally, the book The Sixth Extinction by Elizabeth Colbert was the inspiration for my fact today, and is great, and you should pick it up and read it. So the reason this story stood out to me is because I think it's amazing that Cuvier basically established the existence of new unseen worlds that were distinct from anything that humans knew. And I can't imagine how hard it would have been for people at the time to accept. It's a crazy idea that there are past worlds with completely different life forms on it than the same on the same Earth that we think of as ours. 
But I think even more interesting is that at roughly the same time, there was another world-changing idea developing that Cuvier refused to accept, that is, evolution. So <laughs> Cuvier was colleagues with a guy named Jean-Baptiste Lamarck. And we usually, uh, yeah, yes. so biologists know this name. <laughs> we hear about him in our classes as Darwin's dumb predecessor. But yeah. uh, at Speaking the time, of dunking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Giraffes are probably pretty good at it. Because <laughs> <laughs> they practice. Yeah. Um, <laughs> at the time, Lamarck was the first person to put together an actual theory of evolution. So he was a leader in this field, arguing that life on Earth evolved through biological processes and new species could arise from existing species. He also thought Cuvier was a dummy and his ideas of animals dying out was definitely wrong. He thought species can adapt to new challenges. They can evolve and change. And that's why current species are different than old ones. Not because they all died off, just because they change into a new form. And Cuvier, on the other hand, thought Lamarck was a dummy and evolution didn't make any sense. Cuvier's expertise was in understanding animal anatomy and how all the pieces of an animal fit together perfectly, which is why he was so good at recognizing different species from their fossils. One of his main scientific principles that helped him to identify all these species is that different parts of an animal are functionally linked to each other. So if an animal has teeth that are designed to eat meat, for example, its digestive system must also be designed to digest meat, and its limbs and everything else fit the function of a meat eater. So you can't change one part of an animal through evolution because it'll no longer fit the overall function. So Lamarck refused to believe in extinction and Cuvier refused to believe in evolution. Of course, both of them were wrong. Lamarck could imagine life changing and giving rise to new forms, but he couldn't imagine it suddenly ending. And Cuvier could imagine life suddenly ending in global catastrophe, but he couldn't imagine how new species could arise out of the wreckage. <laughs> and I think it's still true today, as you guys have talked about, that what we're capable of accepting as scientific reality is unfortunately limited by how much of our pre-existing paradigm we're willing to give up. And that's true even for incredibly smart scientists like Cuvier. Paradigm shifts take time as new generations take the lead and are willing to accept new ideas. But in the end, even if we have to wait 180 years, we get the sweet payoff of knowing that at some point, a giant asteroid smashed into a very surprised T-Rex <laughs> and the wait was all worth it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody, it is time for our quiz all about paradigm shifts. So um, when I was making a quiz that was, you know, supposed to be about paradigm shifts, I had to basically figure out what are paradigm shifts. So I went to the fount of all undeniable knowledge, Wikipedia. Wikipedia. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> and on the <laughs> Wikipedia page for Paradigm Shift, there's a subsection, Examples. <laughs> and those are the ones that I'm going to ask you about on this episode. Okay? So question one. Antoine Lavoisier lived a life full of scientific impact. In particular, he developed a theory of chemical reactions and combustion that dismantled phlogiston theory and sparked the chemical revolution. But how did he die? Could it be... Did, did he... Inhale so much oxygen that mm. he just he, he just passed out. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to say he he spontaneously combusted. <laughs> that would be great would, too. If that were true, that would be an excellent trivia question. Yeah. <laughs> um, is it in any way related to his research or what he's remembered for? No. Okay. Ah. <laughs> but oh, it's related get- to what we've talked about today. Well, what it's related to is who he is and at what time he was. Did he get caught between two paradigms and one shifted? And oh, it shifted right over him. <laughs> oh, it was, it was terrible. In a sense, um, it was a clash of but, 
uh, political, socio-political paradigms. Oh, was he a French revolutionary? Yeah, was he guillotined? He was. He was guillotined Ooh, in the French Revolution. Okay. Wow. Yeah. But yeah, so his theory of combustion may have been the spark that brought a chemical revolution to a head, um, but the French Revolution <laughs> took his. Um, so he was accused of tax fraud and also with watering down the nation's tobacco. Um, he, Son of a bitch. He was, <laughs> Out here vaping. Yeah. Ugh. <laughs> this guy. Yeah, so he was beheaded by guillotine, um, and his colleague, uh, this is actually where I might need some help from you, Andre, I think it's Joseph-Louis Lagrange. Oh, that was wonderful. I thought you were uh, replaced by a French person. (laughs) Yeah, oh, perfect. Okay, so it's like Joseph-Louis Lagrange. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Joseph-Louis Lagrange? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I'm starting to doubt you now. Are you... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you really Canadian? All right. But uh, Joseph-Louis Legrand uh, said, it took only an instant to cut off his head, and 100 years might not suffice to reproduce its like. Wow. Which is Aww. pretty nice. It's so they're reproducing sweet. his head. That's crazy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and then we, 100 years later in Madame Tussauds, they, <laughs> <laughs> they finally reproduced it. his head. Um which is sad, obviously. It's sad that he died, but at least the French people could rest assured in the knowledge that their tobacco went unadulterated. But it would be weird it, if he was still alive, though. Yeah, except that <laughs> a year and a half later, he was exonerated by the French government. Uh, <laughs> his, uh, and, and his belongings were returned to his widow with a note uh, that said, to the widow of Lavoisier, who was falsely convicted. Oh, no. <laughs> Which is it's like scant... <laughs> recompense <laughs> yeah um yeah and it's sort of an implicit criticism of uh capital punishment at all right hmm. anyway lavoisier came up during during my research on cuvier because um they're both french yeah no but <laughs> because cuvier wanted to establish kind of um his field of research like anatomy as like having scientific laws comparable to what newton had discovered with physics and what lavoisier had discovered with chemistry he wanted laws of biology that were kind of determined how all biology had to work so cuvier's focus on like functional kind of anatomy and how like an animal had to have all these parts that work together in a logical way he wanted to create the system just like Lavoisier had done for chemistry. So I think that's it's interesting that you brought it up. It's interesting that like when Darwin was like, Oh, I have this idea. Maybe like you could even say it's a law. We'll stick with theory for now about like how evolution works. He was like, no, only I could come up with laws. About biology. <laughs> In fairness, Darwin came later than Cuvier. So Cuvier was just talking to Lamarck and Lamarck. Uh, we okay, all know right. Lamarck. Yeah. I see. Okay. I thought, deals. I thought you were saying Reputation and, Lam- and, uh, and Lagrange were contemporaries, but I see now. Okay. All right, question two. Andreas Vesalius was a 16th century anatomist and physician whose fully illustrated book on human anatomy, De Humani Corporis Fabrica Libri Septum, On the Fabric of the Human Body, overturned the received anatomical wisdom of what ancient Greek thinker? Hippocrates? Hmm. I don't know any other Greek doctors. So (laughs) that sounds about right. Well, on, on on what makes up a human body. And so... Didn't okay. Who did we do a deep dive on? Who like, who wrote about like the like childbirthing process and like how poop is sour? Was that all Aristotle? Those are my facts about Aristotle. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I I feel like he would have written like the kind of the Aristotelian view of the human body would be the the predominant one. So I I would say Aristotle. Cool. Final answer. The answer was Galen. 
Oh, oh I was Galen. reading about Galen. Yes, for my fact. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Galen said basically lots and lots of stuff about medicine um, that essentially nobody dared question until Vesalius. This is about 1300 years later. He, he did a lot of his own research into like the history of medicine about like trying to learn about Galen. And he rediscovered essentially that all of Galen's dissections were done on animals, which was not known. But when Vesalius published this like really well illustrated anatomical treatise uh, that was like very widely distributed, that was like one of the, a huge turning point in medical anatomy. Question three: Isaac Newton and Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz are credited with inventing the physical and mathematical concepts required to describe the motion of bodies under the influence of a system of forces, i.e., classical mechanics. However impressive his mathematical pursuits. Leibniz's dabbling in philosophy inspired French author François-Marie Arouet to pen what novella, satirizing Leibniz's overly optimistic take on the problem of evil? Huh. So a novella by a French dude that makes evil seem like sar- sartorially very simple. Oh, it's so like it Voltaire? Voltaire. Voltaire, uh, Voltaire okay. was the author. So then that oh. must be Candide. The answer is Candide, yes. Okay. There we go. Got okay. it. So... Francois-Marie Arouet, possibly, um, is Voltaire, um, and Voltaire wrote Candide. um, And a common refrain, whenever anything unspeakably horrible happens in Candide, is for a character to say, this is the best of all possible worlds, which is a reference to Leibniz's, like, philosophical viewpoint on, like, like, even though bad things happen because there's a benevolent God, this is the best possible world he could have given us. So everything's fine. <laughs> um, and basically mm, Candide was just like a big middle finger to Leibniz. <laughs> which is interesting. Wow. And inter- Voltaire, actually, we've mentioned in a previous podcast, it's interesting because the, again, I can't, what was her name? Mary Toth or something? The the woman who like pretended, yeah, I think to, so. to, yeah. pretended to like give birth to rabbits to, you know, for fame and possibly money, et cetera. Um, that whole affair, which like so ashamed doctors in England, was used by Voltaire in like a couple essays to argue that England was not actually an enlightened nation. Um, so <laughs> it's interesting that he's come back a couple times. He was just a really snarky guy. <laughs> I'm trying to imagine being like a physicist and having a writer like Voltaire just dunk, just just shitting <laughs> just on you, just go right? full turbo like, on you. I'm just trying to do like physics and understand the world, and I have like a famous writer who will live on in perpetuity, just insulting and degrading. Well, I, I think <laughs> how sad. I think, and I, you know, I don't, I wouldn't, I'm not gonna pretend I know so much about this that I can offer my own Voltairean critique, but I think that. It wasn't the physics that Voltaire was taking issue with. It was like the sort of half baked <laughs> worldview, like philosophical worldview yeah, slash religious worldview. Happy go lucky. Yeah. All right. Question five. In 1879, linguist Ferdinand de Saussure, <laughs> also maybe, um, proposed the laryngeal theory. That is the idea that there are a series of phonemes existing in sort of ancient languages that beyond those that can be reconstructed using the comparative method. The comparative method is basically like taking known languages and with the assumption they all had to dis- you know descend from like a common ancestor language, um, using what is similar about them to like recapitulate what that earlier language must have been like. So he basically proposed that there were what are known as l- laryngeal consonants. And I think that basically 
it has those are consonants that have uh, what are known as a place of articulation. So if you try to make a sound and really think about where your tongue is in your mouth, basically the place of articulation for these is toward the back of the mouth, and that uh, these were not it was not possible to get these from the comparative method, basically. Um, so this was confirmed by the discovery of a language uh, known as Hittite. And the theory is about what sort of like ancestor language um, to many languages that we have discussed before. Proto-Indo-European? Yes. I'm sorry. That was my last question that I wrote. (laughs) Wait, was that the answer? Yeah. Oh. Okay. Yeah, I was like, oh yeah, I talked about like comparative language reconstruction a few episodes ago. I was was running out of Wikipedia (laughs) paradigm shifts and I was like, how do I make this a question? And like... The answer is Proto-Indo-European. Basically, Woo! he was saying he was essentially <laughs> saying it was not it was not possible from like sort of standard linguistic methods from the known languages to reconstruct all of the phonemes present in ancient uh, sort of like pr- uh, predecessor languages that are sort of in the Proto-European right. root. Or, so it's like a it's like a theorized like right. common language among them to account for those yes. unaccountable differences. Um, right. So question six. By looking at a lot of galaxies, Edwin Hubble contributed to the Big Bang Theory by providing the first observational basis for the expansion of the universe. Later, the telescope that bears his name, the Hubble Space Telescope, took an image known as the Hubble Ultra Deep Field of a rectangular region of space about 2.4 arc minutes to an edge or 3.4 arc minutes diagonally, which is smaller than a one square millimeter piece of paper held at one meter away. If you're looking at the sky and you hold one millimeter of paper one meter away from you, that's the amount of sky, basically, in that field of vision that the Hubble Ultra Deep Field was looking at. Approximately how many galaxies did it see? So give you can give me an order of magnitude. It's 10,000. Fucking nailed it. Really? <laughs> almost exactly, wow. almost right? exactly 10,000. Uh, I was guessing entirely. <laughs> I was waiting for Rob and Emily to correct me on that one. That was Absolutely fantastic. nailed that it was, right on the head. That was Don't amazing. even need to dwell on this. Tiny, tiny, <laughs> tiny piece of sky. Um, <laughs> yeah. All right. Great job, Andre. All right. Keeping it moving. Now the show won't be too long. <laughs> yeah. All right. Question seven. In archaeology, the use of LIDAR to remotely image cultural sites is considered a paradigm shift. What does LIDAR stand for? I think it's it's, it's something, something distancing and ranging, which oh, is like most of the DARs. Yeah. Um, and right. so it's probably like light interference, distancing oh, yeah. and ranging. Or, but I don't know. It could be. I feel like this is what they used to find like the, the putative site for Troy when they were like walking around Turkey and they were just like, oh, here, like there's a thing under here. Uh, let me let me see if I can make it easier. Um, it's not always written like this. I found it's really. Uh, oh, is it so the I is actually L in, lowercase the I, the I? I is light. I'll tell you that. Okay. Uh, oh, okay. So. Also, the D might not be distancing because I'm pretty confident on the end ranging, but that also might be totally wrong. No, that's right. And so it's light, okay. blank, okay. and ranging. <laughs> okay. Oh, so close. Blank and ranging. It's got to be something <laughs> like depth in, in ranging <laughs> nope uh well okay it's fine i feel like you guys basically have the concept it's light detection and ranging so it's using oh. using light to detect and range can we all say that's a dumb acronym i mean you can say it 
Uh, you heard it here detection first. Detection and ranging. Why not just say detection? I mean, what's the difference between detection and ranging? Well, because you want to know, because oh. the whole point is to figure out how the how far things are away. So just detect how far it is. <laughs> no, you have you to range have how far it is. You have to detect the object nah, and just... range how far it is. Well, I, I think it's a matter of opinion, but I think you just call it, <laughs> just skip all the acronym, just call it D. It's just detection. And all the details are details. Okay. 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 Well, I'll I'll run that up the flagpole and uh, thank you. Thank you. This is my opinion. Okay. So the answer is light detection and ranging. Um, it is actually very very cool, and it's probably probably of all the ones I've mentioned, it's probably the most recent. Um, I would say uh, so. So it's quite interesting if you read about like, look if you just Google lidar and archaeology. There's really interesting stuff happening. Like basically, you can produce uh what are high resolution what are known as uh digital elevation models or dems which is an acronym i guess that andre would appre- approve of um because it starts with d um <laughs> just call them models <laughs> dims dims no. dims are high resolution models do. Um, so they can produce these high resolution digital elevation models of archaeological sites that can reveal micro topography that is otherwise hidden by vegetation some recent uses of this that are quite interesting particularly in central america so in 2012, LIDAR revealed that the Puna Pecha settlement of Angamuco in Michoacan, Mexico, had about as many buildings as today's Manhattan, which is wow. like way Whoa. more than were previously thought. Like they're so, like their society and their, like their cities was so much more complex and like more built out than we're aware of. I was reading a little bit. There's a, it's used in Egyptology as well um, to discover, you know, sort of previously unknown archaeological sites. And it is basically accelerating the discovery of the global cultural past, which is very, very cool. So nice. my favorite question and favorite fact, which I promise I will use in a fu- future episode fleshed out. Question eight. Renowned naturalist Charles Darwin gained fame for his work as a naturalist on the second expedition of the HMS Beagle which naturally resulted in his work on the origin of species and the theory of natural selection. My question to you is, true or false, was Charles Darwin the official ship's naturalist for that expedition? Ooh, false. false. He was trained as a doctor, or or tried to be, but couldn't stand the sight of blood. So perhaps he was on for that, just not very effectively. (laughs) Poor guy. Yeah, definitely. It seems like you've used the word natural so many times <laughs> and that it's your favorite fact would make it a clear false. Okay. You're going with false. Okay. All right. False with the story there. All right. It's false. Okay. You're saying it's false. Now I'll give you a second choice. Now you can decide how I'm going to decide whether or not what you've told me is true or false. And that is in your opinion, is the official ship's naturalist, the person who held that position at the start or the person who held that position for the most amount of time? Start, right? I mean, on the charter, it would be the person at the start. Mm. Kind of like... So, like, I'm thinking of this from a colonial kind of perspective. The Beagle leaves England, and the Queen, looking at all of her many charters, is like, who is the naturalist on this ship? <laughs> and Perfect. she sees Perfect. and That's says, someone... <laughs> You didn't know I had that in the repertoire, right? But, <laughs> no. So she's holding she's on. my toes. This is your, so this is your 1830s voice instead of your 1930s voice. Yeah. She says, I see it's this man. Oh, yes, not, not Darwin. Oh, my God. Is the queen on this podcast? That's crazy. <laughs> but, like, the ship's out, and then the other guy dies or whatever or sucks, and Darwin's like, well, mm. I'm a better naturalist anyway. And so he is, in fact, the naturalist. <laughs> but if you're anyone in England... He's not. 
So you're saying the worst naturalist died out and a better naturalist took his place. <laughs> kind of like natural selection. A naturalist that was more... Naturalist selection. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got to say, this is great reasoning because if you think the naturalist that starts the whole that starts the expedition is the official naturalist then it is false that darwin was the official naturalist what was my question again Mm -hmm. yeah yes so (laughs) if you think that whoever starts out as the official naturalist is the official naturalist for the expedition (laughs) charles darwin was not the official uh, naturalist so we got it right then you guys got it absolutely right now (laughs) dunk did you just (laughs) okay so so I learned something that I am very happy to share with you. A lot of dunking today. Um, and it's that the Darwin wasn't an official anything on this boat. He was. This was a naval science expedition. Uh, Darwin was a private citizen who was essentially had been invited there to keep the captain company because in the Royal Navy it was frowned and In fact, it was not just frowned upon it was not allowed for captains to fraternize with like subordinate people and so sometimes these expeditions that would go out for a really long time would have a companion ship so like the captains could hang out this was not sent with one of those um and so he was really concerned about the isolation it was a five it would end up being a five-year journey so you got to think about like the the level of like social isolation that is if you're in order to like keep the chain of command you are not you have to always eat alone you can't like have a friend uh that is like a naval sounds like yeah basically (laughs) (laughs) um so darwin was kind of just there as like a companion who (laughs) was interested in going because he was a science you know he was interested in science right and he saw the like um the the opportunities that that would like present to him. And in fact, I I read a little bit about how I read a little bit about how like Darwin had like an interview with uh, the captain and he like, whose name I'm just blanking on. Oh, it's uh, Fitzroy. His, the captain's name is Fitzroy. And he had this meeting with him. They were like both in their twenties, both. They just, they really like vibed during this meeting um, and sort of the original like gentleman companion of the captain, like had to back out. And so Darwin got to go along and Robert McCormick had like all these, who was the, the, uh, the official ship's naturalist slash ship surgeon. So he was the, like the ship's, surgeon who also was responsible for like the naval science you know collection of species samples and stuff um and he had a lot of like he had a lot of ideas about how this was going to be his big break um but the presence of darwin there who as a private citizen didn't have any like shipboard duties meant that he was allowed to like just disembark and go off on land and like go down some river and like meet up with the ship later and collect a bunch of samples. And so he rapidly was like outpacing Robert McCormick's own scientific collection. And he just could not handle that. So only four months (laughs) into this five year uh, expedition, Robert McCormick basically claims that he was ill and requested a transfer. And this is a process known as being invalided. Um, and so he, he disembarked at Rio de Janeiro and then took the HMS Tyne back to England. So what the best part, the cherry on top of this, and there was like a little bit of like competition between these two, um, especially when Robert McCormick, apparently they got along at the beginning, but then Robert started being kind of a dick. And then like Darwin didn't really like him that much after that because he was being so hostile. Um, so 
Robert McCormick has to take the HMS Time back to England, which gave everyone on the ship, Darwin including, an opportunity to send some of his like mail and for Darwin some of his scientific journals and correspondence back to his sister for safekeeping. So McCormick has to carry the the fruits of Darwin's labor that he had objected to so much to like bail out of this expedition. Um, back to England, including a letter explaining uh, from from Darwin to his sister, which explained to her the circumstances of of his being able to write to her. And he says, I take the opportunity of McCormick returning to England, being invalided, i.e. being disagreeable to the captain. And then it goes, he is no loss. Wow. (laughs) Which is just like an amazing thing. And you would think like, the best part about this is that Robert McCormick like is super bitter the rest of his life. Like he tries to get on another expedition and go to Antarctic, never really manages to break through. Um, so like to the end of his life, he was very, very bitter and it's like, it's terrible. And I want to add that you think like he is no loss that, that sentiment is like a massive burn, right? You might also think if you're Robert McCormick, you're like, whatever that, that phrase will fade away with history. I read the book. He is no loss. A, bio- a biography <laughs> of Robert McCormick, which is really oh interesting and where I got a lot of this stuff from. And I, I specifically want to mention that because, A, it's funny that it did not fade away. It's the title of a book. <laughs> two, uh, I guess I went A to two. So A to B, <laughs> this is B now. Um, this book is, is really cool. And it's actually a master's thesis dissertation that was published um, uh, from... Uh, a, a history of ma- science master student Emily Steele at University of College London, um, which and it's all about Robert McCormick's life and his relationship with Darwin, um, and it's really, really, really cool and interesting. And her advisor, Dr. Joe Kane at UCL um, in the science and technology studies, I guess area, uh, said of her, Emily Steele achieved the near impossible with Darwin by finding something new, and. In a podcast that is like founded by graduate students, I just thought, you know, we found something really cool that a graduate student found, um, and I thought that was worth nice. highlighting and mentioning her. So uh, it was very, very, very cool. Uh, and with that, that's our show. A big thank you to our special guest, Dr. Andre Pineda. Dr. Dre, where can our listeners learn more about you? You can find me on Twitter at Dre the Scientist, where right now you'll mostly see me retweeting epidemiologists. Uh, <laughs> explaining <laughs> what is going on right now, but uh, I'd love to yeah see more people talking about <laughs> science and talk more about science. So find me there. Uh, and if you want to learn more about us or get in touch with us about what you heard in the episode or to tell us what you thought was cool, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Fax Machine Pod and on Facebook at Fax Machine Podcast. And we're on social media. I'm at Arcs and Sciences. M at underscore E M Costa and Rob. At SweaterVest SCI. Fax Machine is produced by Noah Guyberson, Rob Frawley, and Emily Costa, with editing by Noah Guyberson. The theme music is by AC Antonelli, and our logo was designed by Mike Zola. Thanks for listening. Bye. 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 <laughs>